Good morning, afternoon, evening again, everybody. Whenever you're listening to this, I appreciate you tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. I'm Josh Gordon. I talk with former Oregon State athletes and coaches on this podcast to get a feel for what they did at OSU, what they've done since then, and the life lessons they've learned and the best stories they've got during their athletic and career beyond athletics. What if I told you that today's guest on the podcast at one point was the best player in the nation of any age, any level, just the best player in the USA in a sport that he didn't even play in high school? That's the case for former Oregon State women's volleyball coach Gerald Gregory, who was the USA men's volleyball national team captain in the late 70s, and he won U.S. Player of the Year. That award cemented him specifically as the best player in the nation, but he didn't even really like volleyball or understand the rules in high school. But by the end of his college career, he was one of the best players in the nation even by that point and continued blossoming after his college career ended in 1975. In fact, we talked partly about the end of his college career. He played at UC Santa Barbara when he was declared ineligible partway through the 75 season, which ended his college career less than a year after he helped UCSB to the national championship match, but they lost to UCLA. He was on the all-tournament team there in 1974, but his team lost in the fifth and final set, and his path for redemption in 1975 was cut short before the NCAA tournament concluded. After playing for the U.S. national team for about five years until 1979, Gerald became a volleyball coach, including at Oregon State, where he was the head coach from 1980 to 82. He went 57 and 45 over those three seasons, which at the time was the best winning rate in program history of any coach. In Gerald's second year, the team went 19 and 11, which was the best winning percentage and best finish in regional standings in the program history. Now, to be fair, the program wasn't that old at the time. He was just the third coach in the program overall. Interestingly enough, Gerald went on to coach at the University of Oregon, so he's quite familiar with the Beavers and the Ducks. And we recorded this podcast right after the news about the Civil War. Gerald offered his opinion on renaming the rivalry and removing the term the Civil War. I didn't really add my own thoughts. Maybe at some point I will, but I don't mind talking with people of either opinion. But mostly we focus on things more pertinent to his career and life journey. Gerald also coached at Wyoming and Azusa Pacific. He was a science teacher for a while, and now he's retired and lives in Panomo, California. Which, if you don't know where that is, it's near Atascadero. And if you don't know where that is, it's one hour and 12 minutes north of Santa Barbara. And I know that because I drove up from Santa Barbara to his home in Panomo on a crisp Wednesday morning to talk with him in his home. I had been visiting my brother in Santa Barbara, so I was in the neighborhood of sorts. And Gerald became the first in-person interview I've had on this podcast. Forgive me at times for the audio. It mostly sounds really good. But when I left Oregon, I didn't know I'd have a chance to talk with Gerald, so I didn't bring my full audio setup, and I only had one microphone, and we sat across a table, so at times you'll hear me adjusting the microphone, but mostly it's good quality. The reason I got to know Gerald is actually because he met his wife, Sally, at my dad's apartment about 50 years ago. My dad and Gerald were college friends. All three of them, in fact, were student athletes at UC Santa Barbara. My dad, Mark Warden and Sally were both swimmers. Gerald played volleyball, and that's how Gerald and Sally got introduced, was kind of through my father. So Gerald will share his side of the story about how he met his now wife. Uh, towards the end of this podcast, we'll talk about that, as well as a funny anecdote of how my dad moved up from California to Corvallis. Gerald was the coach at Oregon State, 
And if it wasn't for him and Sally, my dad would never have moved up to Oregon, I don't think, and where he met my mom, Laura Warden, who is the head swimming coach at OSU in the 80s. So we end the podcast with that whole saga. In fact, if you hear voices in the background, that's Sally and my parents catching up. This was kind of a pit stop on the family road trip. And so I pulled Gerald aside to do the podcast and the rest chatted among themselves. But it just kind of provides a coffee shop type ambiance to my conversation with Gerald. And by the way, congratulations to my brother, Nathan. We went down to Southern California for this road trip to surprise him and his girlfriend because he was proposing and she said yes. So congratulations to Nathan and Jeanette. For episode 36 of the podcast, sit back with Gerald Gregory recorded before a live audience in Pinomo, California. Gerald, thanks for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Josh. Thank you for having me. This will be the the first in-person interview I've done on this podcast. I've done about 35 or so episodes. I'm not sure when I'll release this one, but they've all been online and I drove down to California just for you. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> not not quite just for you. We, we made it on the fly as I came down to Southern California and realized, hey, this would actually work to, to drive back up after seeing some family in Southern California. But thanks for being available and chatting about some OSU memories and other stuff. And it'll be fun to catch up. My pleasure. Let's start with your playing career in college at UCSB okay. as a volleyball player for the Gauchos right in Santa Barbara where mm-hmm. I was spending some time the last few days. When you were playing in the early 70s, and that's kind of a hotbed of you know men's volleyball, UCLA was really dominant mm-hmm. at that time amongst other eras as well. What are some of your favorite memories of playing for a national title contender like UCSB? Well, I think the first thing was that we had a great coach. Mm-hmm. And I was very serious about getting better as a, as a player. And my coach would really bring out the best in me. He taught me so many things and really sped my, my learning curve up. And so I appreciated that. I was a hard worker. And it just was everything that I was hoping for. Mm. When you, let's see, you were senior in 74, is that right? Would have been your last season? Yeah, I was, because I was in the military, I was on a, a different plan than most people in 74. Uh, I was probably a junior uh, academically, and in 75, I was a senior. Mm. But because I was in the military, it actually cut my opportunity to finish up the season. So in 75, we were undefeated and ranked number one, and my eligibility ran out about one month before the NCAA championships. Goodness. It was brutal. How, How did your timeline with the military fit in? I mean, at what point were you... Starting or well, I was with the. It was during the the heat of the uh, Vietnam War. I enlisted in 1970 into the reserves, and I had a six-year uh, obligation. So I actually finished my obligation in 1976. Mm-hmm. But there was uh, boot camp and and training and different kinds of things that I had to do. It was it was a, a six-month obligation, but the six-month kind of took me off of my normal sequence that I, I would have expected to, to get through school. It was a blessing and a curse. The, the curse is that it threw me off, but I was really a late bloomer physically. So mm-hmm. when I went into the, the service, I really didn't have a lot of you know, things that I did outside of training. And so I you know, got in the weight room and got really serious about getting in good physical condition. So it helped me, it gave me another 
know, half year to, to mature. Sure. And you continue to play for several years after that for the USA national team. And so it seemed like you did have a career that lasted well beyond college. Well, it's interesting because when I was a, uh, in the military, I didn't know anything about volleyball. It wasn't until I actually came back huh. to Long Beach. I went to Long Beach City College and just got kind of recruited to play volleyball. So I had a really short period of, of learning. I, uh, I think I've started volleyball in 1971 or so and by 1972 I was at UCSB and playing pretty seriously so I, I learned fast but I just was at the right place at the right time. Wow. So you didn't play in high school at all? No, I, I thought volleyball was you, you jump up, grab the net with your left hand, try to grab the ball with your right, and hold it for a little bit and slam it where the other people weren't. Almost so like water polo it, on yeah, ground. Exactly. It was like <laughs> a crude form of water polo yeah. on, on land. But wow. And so I, I didn't know anything about volleyball, but once I did learn... Yeah, I just fell in love with it. And I'm no volleyball expert, but that's a fault to touch the net while going up for a spike, that's, right? That's a, that's a no-no, but, yep. but in high school gym class, you could get away with it. Yeah, yeah. So we'll come back to the, the 75 awkward finish to your volleyball career because that's its own interesting story. But how did you then uh, basically start playing volleyball where you get recruited? But, how, you know, why, first of all, if you hadn't played in high school? Okay, so I was in a really into physical fitness at the time. I was at Long Beach City College and I um, took a, a weight training class that also had a jump rope component to it. And the coach there, no, no relation, but his name was Ken Gregory. He was an ex-NFL football player. He was also the volleyball coach mm. at Long Beach City College. And I impressed him by how high I could jump and my stamina and my work ethic. And so he asked me to come out for the men's team mm. and I I didn't know anything about volleyball it's it's a very awkward sport <laughs> you know it'd be like trying to pick up a tennis racket and playing against somebody who a college player and of course there's a learning curve there so I, I come out for the the team and I thought that I was so bad I, I just embarrassed myself <laughs> and so I, I didn't come out again and so the coach came to me the next you know time we were in the weight room and said well Gerald, why weren't you, you know, at practice today? And I and I said, well, look, I'm I'm no good. You know, you're <laughs> wasting your time with me. He says, no, 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 no. There's a learning curve. You know, stick with it. And so I did actually come out and make the team. But the first year, I never once successfully hit a ball <laughs> down to the ground. I was a blocking specialist. Yeah. And and a just a nightmare as a, as a defensive player and a, and a passer. So it, it just was very embarrassing, but I got through it. And by the, the next year, I was actually fairly confident and I got uh, recruited to UCSB. Wow. Did you ever have any measurements on, on vertical leap or anything that show, wow, this guy's got a lot of raw potential and we see something? Well, I did. And uh, it's, I, I, I was a big jumper, but Compared to what some people say, I wasn't that that great. I probably was like high thirties or so mm -hmm. with an approach, but um, you know you hear about people who could jump in the forties, and it just blows my mind. Yeah, the athletic ability of of some people these days. And you, I guess, I mean, you came to Oregon State later on, but that was right after the Dick Fosbury era and reinventing all the high jumps. So oh yeah. In fact, when I was a little boy, I, I would do the Fosbury flop in in my. Uh, my parents' 
front room and I, I would break furniture. <laughs> but I was, that was, he, he was a hero of mine. Right. I, how could you not think what an incredible athlete, what a story, you know, a paradigm shift. And I could jump like Dick Fosbury if I really worked at it. <laughs> I just finished the, Foz, uh, the Wizard of Foz, which is his biography written right. by Bob Welch. And Bob Welch tells a story about how Dick Fosbury essentially created the whole technique when he was in high school down in Medford. And he tells a story of, you know, one little boy in the era in the area, you know, jumps on his bed and breaks the bed. His mom comes home, seeing the furniture is broken. And the, at the end of the book, he comes back and says, that little boy is actually me. I was trying to do the Dick, Burry's, Dick Fosbury fly. I think there's a lot of us out there, you know, closet <laughs> Fosbury leapers. You yeah. Know? So you eventually come to UCSB as a raw player, but you end up going from a guy who hadn't even played volleyball in high school to then going to the USA national team. And, and tell me what you felt was maybe, I don't know, the highest accomplishment that you got to, just to draw the, the contrast between, you know, kind of thinking volleyball is silly to look where you got. So what do you, what do you think was your peak as a player? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I think I, my skill level continued to increase, you know, even past the time when I was, uh, you know, a national team level athlete, but my body, you know, my body kind of broke down. But I would say in 1980, I was player of the year in the United States and uh, accomplished in, in all the skills on the, on the court. And I, uh, I think that, that was a, that was a high point. And um, I don't know, I, I have some really great memories of national team matches but the problem was is that we just were limited in in our personnel and as a result you know we didn't win a lot but we did win some and I remember one match we beat the the Soviets and they were a great team we beat the Poles and they were a great team we beat the Cubans and they were a great team but it was difficult Qualifying for the Olympics was was a real high bar, and I I, I don't know if I'm really getting where you want me to go, but sure. I, I was a, yeah, yeah. a good all around player when I was and I was national team captain, mm-hmm. and so I, I worked harder than anybody else, and was always the smallest man on the court, and mm-hmm. still could hang in there. Yeah, I mean there may be some Fosbury connections from a guy who couldn't jump five foot four in high school to then become an Olympic gold medalist in Fosbury's case right. to you barely even thinking about volleyball to USA team captain to player of the year and all that sort of thing. I mean, that's a, that's a giant contrast in a fairly short span. Yeah, probably less than 10 years. And you know, the one thing that I, uh, he's a famous writer, but he talks about 10,000 hours of, of, uh, Oh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. I think his concept was, was right in my case in, in that I, I probably amassed my 10,000 hours much quicker than anybody else mm. around. And I was also at the right place at the right time because mm. volleyball was a young sport. And, you know, these days I would have a really tough time being an outside hitter. Uh, I would probably be too small for setter, you know, might make it as a Libro. But back then we were playing about against magnificent players, but there was a real place for all-around skill. Mm. And that's something that I eventually developed even though when I first started you asked me how my first year at Long Beach City College I I, I couldn't really do anything mm-hmm. except for jump and and run around fast yeah 
So now when I see volleyball, you know, you would know better than I would, but it seems like the positions are pretty specialized. You've got your liberos, you've got your outside hitters, you've got your middle blockers, and the, the heights and the general physical capabilities are not across the board identical for every player, but there's a, a certain default of these are usually the type of talents these players have. Whereas if you were playing today, do you think it would have been I mean, do you think it would have been more difficult to put yourself in a certain position and it fit oh, your... Oh, absolutely. In fact, towards the end of my career, I was a, an outside hitter and we were playing against really, really big people, mm. you know, and I was just shocked at how fast the game had had developed and it was a different kind of a game where unless you have height, it you could jump high, but it takes you a period of time to get to that height. Mm -hmm. When you're a tall person with a high reach, it takes you less time to get to your peak mm -hmm. peak height and a, a functional height. And so it, it would it would be very difficult for a person like me to to play at a high level yeah. on the front front line. Well, I think we'll start and end with the end of your college career because I, I want to hear more about the story of both '74 and '75. But since we're kind of on the topic of volleyball changing and morphing is it'd be interesting to then see how you were a coach in that era and let's talk about Oregon State in particular so you came to OSU probably in the fall of 79 before the 1980 season right. mm -hmm. so at that point you've now learned enough about volleyball only being about 10 years removed from right. really starting the whole thing right so at that point where how did Oregon State fit into your arc as a transition of playing to coaching and when you kind of look in retrospect over the arc of your career how does Oregon State fit into all that well Oregon State the reason I was there is because they had a fishery a PhD in fisheries biology mm -hmm. and that was my what I, I thought I wanted to do for my life I was a you know marine biology major at, at Santa Barbara and so it, it fit in it wasn't what I expected and I learned pretty quickly that I really did not want to be a, a toxicologist, mm. you know, and, and a, a lab scientist. So it, it took me, you know, less than a year to, to figure out that, but that's what drew me to, to Oregon State. And then I was just lucky enough to get, I, w I was just named the, the player of the year. And so they hired me based on my volleyball knowledge. And plus the, the program was in a down state. You know, they, they had really had a tough go the year before, mm -hmm. and they did have some returners, but it was a it, it was a, a struggling program. And I, I got there, I, I worked hard, and I worked them hard, and they liked it, mm -hmm. which didn't surprise me at the time because I didn't know any different. And we got better. We were never a great team, but we were a good, a, a good solid team. And then we recruited... And ended up getting some quite good players and, and some super players from the state of Oregon and some from California. And we ended up, I think in our second or third year, we were ranked in the top 20, mm. which was a monumental uh, feat. And I, I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time to be at, at that place at that time with those people because our, our budget was a shoestring. Mm. Everything was a partial scholarship yeah. and we were going against some programs that had more money than us but it, we were still in the ballpark and um, the fact that I was a, was a good player and an ex-national team member helped me recruit people that probably wouldn't have come otherwise. 
Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this interview on the Beaver Tales podcast. I want to interrupt real quick to give an update on a new project. Coming up later this year, I'll be unveiling a full season's worth of sports documentaries related to Oregon State athletics. These audio documentaries will give you a deeper look at some of the most classic Beaver moments, and the first season will center around the 2018 Beaver baseball team. I've already interviewed about a dozen players and coaches from that team, as well as people not affiliated with OSU that'll give you a new perspective on that championship squad that team it's like there was a constant level of greatness that was to be upheld those are legends who were on that 2018 team i mean that many first rounders in the same lineup whether we won the national championship or not i was always going to love those guys again this project will come out hopefully later this calendar year i'll give you more information about a release date and other info as well right here on future episodes of the beaver tales podcast all right, back to the interview. We talked a little bit about how the shape of volleyball as a sport has changed, at least in terms of the positions. Now that you became a coach, and as you go throughout the 80s and beyond, as a person who can actually fundamentally be the instigator of that change, if you can tell your players, here's where I want you to go, here's what position I want you to play. When you were playing, did you have a feeling of, hmm, I think this is how I would want my team to be formed, or did you start to kind of create your own coaching philosophies of how you want it not that you revolutionize the game but now you're as, as the head coach you've got a lot of power to shape at least your own team right right and I I knew the people the type of people that I worked best with and they weren't always that the greatest athlete hmm. and I knew that there were some great athletes that I really would like to have on my team but I knew there would be difficulties hmm. and Luckily, at, at OSU, we didn't really have any of those people. We had some really strong athletes, and they were all willing to work hard. And so it just was just, I didn't realize at the time, but it was one of the most satisfying coaching experiences that, that I would have. Mm. And I, when we did leave, Sally and I, we, we left for a different city and it was really had more to do with money is that we were so poor and we had a young family we just couldn't afford to live um, in Corvallis as, as inexpensive as it was with the salary that, that, mm. we, that we had. Yeah. When you started coaching at OSU and you're playing uh, a lot of teams from the area, it was kind of fun to look through the schedule they still have with the media guide of game by game of all the teams you played. In the very first year, you played Oregon, I think, four or five times mm -hmm. that first season. And then it slimmed down to usually two times per season. Right. But what what was your feeling about the Ducks when you were a coach at Oregon State? I, I was a little offended by them. Really? Yeah, and I, I didn't know why, but they seemed to have an air of superiority mm. and a, you know, a, a little bit of prideful a aspect to them. And they were huge. Mm. They were, I mean, there were girls on their, on their team that were six, one, six, two, and, and a number of them, but luckily for us, they weren't the greatest athletes mm -hmm. and, and we were quicker and we had some, some players who really, really had, you know, a, a drive and desire to, to, beat them yeah and that was it was really good it wasn't easy and uh, but I had a you know I really wanted to beat the Ducks mm -hmm. and uh, and I, I understand that mentality I, I wasn't angry at them mm -hmm. but it also I was a little shocked by 
calling the the match against the Ducks the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little bit extreme in my mind <laughs> because you know that's those are fighting words there, yeah. and uh, I think I understand the the mentality. But it was as much as I thought. You know, UCLA and USC have a real rivalry. They don't call it the Civil War. Sure, you know, and, sure. And uh, that that was. Then we were also confused too with. When we first got to Oregon State, you know, we, we thought of ourselves as Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and because of the state, not right. because of, but Oregon has co-opted that term Oregon. It's just Oregon, yeah. And so we got, we got you know, corrected pretty quickly that, no, we're not Oregon. No. We are, oh, yeah, we no. are Oregon State or OSU or right. Beavs or whatever. Right. But it, it was a little bit of a learning curve for us. Yeah. And at the time of this recording, this is pretty new news is that the Civil War name, which kind of seemed jarring to you, is now no longer in use. They just announced that, that they're not going to use it anymore. And now I've come full circle. Yeah. Where I think, well, what's wrong with Civil War? You know? <laughs> You've gone the other way. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's its own whole conversation of its own, which... Yeah, it just means that people are serious about it. I, I, the intention is good, but... You know, the political correctness is not going to allow it to happen sure. in the future. Yeah. Well, for whatever reason, whether it's, I mean, as you initially didn't like it or for then you got to like it, but either way, now it's gone. Uh, we could have a whole conversation on suggestions of the of the new name, but we'll, we'll save that for another time. So you you said we really wanted to beat Oregon. They kind of had an air of superiority, and you did beat them. That you mm-hmm. swept them the final two seasons. You were mm-hmm. a coach for three years at OSU, mm-hmm. and you beat them both times your, your second and third year. And then it wasn't straight to U of O. There's a gap in between, but I'm curious. You ended up becoming the head coach of the U of O women's volleyball team. Right, so right. how did you go from kind of feeling angry, or not angry at them, but you didn't particularly like them. You really wanted to beat them. And then you became their head coach. So how did right. that happen? Well, I was at University of Wyoming, and uh, it was a, another really great experience. We were nationally ranked and, and had a good team. And... The previous coach at Oregon, Chris Bowles, recruited me as uh, for their their head coach, and at that point, I was flattered and I felt like there was an opportunity at at, at Oregon to lift it up a, a higher level. And the other X factor was Laramie was a really remote place. Mm-hmm. It was difficult for our family there. We met some great people, but it's just. Two hours drive to Denver, and and uh, you know there just was the weather is tough, so we we prayed about it, and I got offered the position, and I, I accepted. And at that point, I think I was removed from the OSU mentality to the point where Oregon didn't sound so bad. In mm. fact, one of the reasons why we wanted to go is because we had such a wonderful time in Corvallis. We we associated. Oregon with really happy memories and we wanted we wanted to come back and mm. I know God influenced us to, to come we had a, a really great experience there and uh, it was a, a good experience for a long long time mm. so you ended up coaching at U of O for a little longer than at OSU but for what it's worth you had a better record at OSU than U of O <laughs> well that's so true in fact the the end of the, the career at, at Oregon was, was difficult, and the same situation was happening at Oregon State, too, in that when you get thrown into the, the Pac-10, mm-hmm. which was Pac-10 at that point, all of a sudden you're playing USC twice, you're playing UCLA twice, you're playing Stanford twice, you're playing 
Washington twice when we would have played them anyway, but Arizona State and Arizona, and these are all national, they're all in the top 20, and our schedule at OSU is not, not quite as tough. Last question kind of on, on the coaching is how often, we've talked about you know volleyball technique and how the game changed, but what about how often your coaching went beyond the lines, the relationships you developed where you're affecting a player's life because they were going through something or the mentoring you had or relationships that lasted beyond college where the players stay in touch. How often did you have moments like that or any particular stories that, that come to mind where you became a coach but also a mentor and a leader beyond just volleyball? I think quite a few times. I think at the time, the, the thing that would bring you closer to an athlete was that in this particular she, because we were you know, training, have had a, a female athletes, they're going through a crisis time. And so at the, at the time, it really seemed difficult for them. And as, re, as, a, as a coach, you, you know, hurt for them and try to help them as much as you possibly can. So at, at, at the time, you don't realize just how much of a difference you might be making in a person's life. And you don't find out, honestly, for five years, 10 years, where when the, they reach out to you and say, thank you, coach, for, for sticking with me or for you know, helping me through this time. So at the time, I don't think I was quite as aware as I, I would be now. Mm. Let's kind of come back to the end of your playing career. And we'll start with 74 because that year, which you did get to play that season, right, throughout the completion of it, uh, you make the NCAA tournament. It, the tournament's actually held on the campus of UCSB, which is pretty fun. UCLA, which had won three of the last four national championships at that point, uh, and UCSB makes the final match. So it's down to the national championship game. Uh, you win the first set, lose the second, win the third, lose the fourth. It comes down to the fifth. And you end up getting up six to one in that fifth set, but ultimately lose that fifth and final set. UCLA wins their fourth national championship, 15 to 12. How did you handle both the excitement of, you know, we went, what, 40 and four that year and we're second best in the country and a lot of excitement, but also handling a tough loss in the national championship match at your home venue and all that. How did all those emotions come to a head back in 74? Well, I, I can tell you I've had more sleepless nights. I, I mean, to this day, I think about that match. Wow. And uh, it, was, it was a brutal loss. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you some of the reasons why we lost. And, you know, part of it is just that UCLA upped their game. And they had a superior coach in Al Skates who brought out a person that we had never even seen, never played against. His name was Saban Perkins. And I don't know if he had any kind of a career after that match, but he came and he served so tough that he took us completely out of our, our passing game mm. to the point where we have people on our on our team who are really, really competent that were just incapable of, mm. of passing his serves. I've just never, had never seen anything like it. And then volleyball is a lot like NBA basketball at the end of the fourth quarter, that momentum is, is a huge factor. And what ended up happening is we, we got behind and we just didn't make in the adjustments. But part of it is a, a paradigm shift of, of what made the USA national team so good in a couple of years. There were adjustments done to their, their passing formation so you don't expose mm. some of the people who are, aren't the best passers and then you 
restrict the number of people who even have the chance to pass the ball. And at that point, the game hadn't developed enough to to come to that point. We we just got exploited by a superior strategy and, and a person who had a, a career match. Mm. And so I, I take my hat off to them. We didn't play poorly. We didn't choke, I don't think. We just didn't have the wherewithal to to deal with what was what was going on. So that was a really, really tough match. And um, I it, it impacted me so greatly that it inspired me to never, ever, ever take a victory for, for granted, never take an opponent for granted, never take a preparation opportunity for granted, and always keep, keep learning, keep finding ways to exploit the uh, opponent and when you have your foot on the on the gas you just don't let up so at any rate that 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 was part of the, the the issue with that particular match but something that's not really talked about very frequently is in 10 days after that match we played uh for the the usa national championship against a field that was vastly superior to ucla mm. i mean there were a number there were probably four or five teams that would have cleaned up UCLA in, and we had to play against all of them. We ended up winning two tournaments, you know, at the same time, simultaneously, we won the, the collegiate championship and the, the U.S. Open national championship, and we didn't lose a match. Wow. We were that good. We just, we kind of ran into a buzzsaw against UCLA in, in 74, and, you know, they're, their coach, to, you know, really deserves a lot of credit. Right. No, that's amazing to have that opportunity for redemption right after the 74 NCAA championship to have those tournaments and a chance to, to show your medal and show what you could achieve because otherwise maybe your only shot for redemption would have been the 1975 season, which you were still eligible for part of it. Yeah. But then how did that come to an end? And it seems weird, the eligibility stuff, but what happened there and how did – how did you handle the weird 1975 season? Well, this is really different rules back then as opposed to this year. I got an extension because of the um, the time that I spent in active duty. And so I think it was a six-month extension. So the NCA decided they would start it from September, but it was going to end in in April, if I remember right. The problem is, is that the championships were in May. Mm-hmm. So had we had the championships happened, you know, earlier, or if we if I had played a fall sport, I would have gotten a chance to play. So at any rate, you know, we had a great a great season. I don't remember what our record was, but we had dominated UCLA. And what ended up happening was when I was declared ineligible, we had a young coach, and we had to change our lineup, and some. It's kind of what you were saying to me, you know, as, as a player, would you start to think of what coaches could do? What ended up happening was we we didn't really put the strongest lineup that we, we could have. But even so, I'm just going to sound egotistical, I apologize, but I, I was one of the best players in the country at the time. And to lose a player who fit a particular role and then try to put another person and have him played that same role that I did it, it, I was a unique player and it was like trying to put a, a square peg in a round hole it just didn't work and so we ended up um, playing a horrible match mm-hmm. against UCLA in the, in the finals and just remember sitting on the bench and not knowing what to do and 
but we were, you know, they were clearly the better team that night, but we had dominated them to that, to that point. And so I, I think that's what happened. Yeah. So you were just basically sitting there. You couldn't play ruled ineligible, but you're just sitting for the national championship and probably a few matches leading up to then just, just couldn't play kind of helpless. Right. Right. Wow. Did you spend any time actually overseas with the military leading up to then? Or was your... No, no. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I chose, it was a reserve program called the, forget the name, but, but basically my only responsibility was six weeks of active duty for, you know, training, learning electronics and boot camp. Mm -hmm. And then once a year, two weeks training at some site that they would send me and once a month spending a weekend as a reservist. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, no, I never traveled overseas, although on the national team, I, I traveled all over the world and saw a lot of communist countries and realized just how of a system the capitalist system is compared to you know what's going on in in the the, the soviet bloc gotcha so kind of the the last question or last you know topic it seems like if you could have written your story of how you wanted your playing career to go it wouldn't have turned out exactly the way it actually did you would have written yourself into the 1974 championship and won that and played the 75 season and been able to go to the Olympics, whether that be in 76 when you didn't qualify or 80 where your career was kind of coming to an end and then the boycott anyways. And so, but there were also a lot of highlights that I'm sure you would have kept in. So there's, there's so many highs and lows to have a career where there's so much on either side, so many good points that bring good memories, so many games that you still remember that would have gone differently. How did you come to handle that develop as a person and, and realize, you know, I can't write my own script, but I got to blank, you know, and, and whatever reaction or, you know, however you handle that. What did you come to learn in the years following that and all the way leading up to today? The most important thing for me is to, to leave with a good name. And there's sometimes where even that's impossible because people can make criticisms that aren't, aren't fair or make, uh, statements about you that aren't true and all you can do is is do your very very best and use every opportunity but you know the thing is is that um, in sports it sometimes it feels like it's a zero-sum game there's a loser and there's a winner and to me that's a difficult place to be in it it can make you more successful if you take it a certain way it can also make you a better person and I think the fact is that I put my faith in God. I, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And um, he died for me. And he hung on a cross for me. And um, I, I just want to give him all glory for everything that he's, you know, he's presented me the opportunities and the mistakes I've made and some of the things that I've, I've, you know, have done right. I'm very thankful for my life, and uh, I don't know if I could change anything because I, I for the most part, I, I tried as hard as I could. Mm. Yeah, that's all. You, all you can say, and that's yeah. That's I appreciate you saying that. Let's close with a story that involves both how you met your wife and my own dad and, and kind of my mom in an unrelated way as they sit on a few feet away. I think you met your wife at my dad. You can share the story 
yeah, well, actually, I'll just ask that. How did you meet Sally? Well, I was in a marine biology class, and Dan Roblicki was in that class, and uh, he was a roommate with, with Mark. And um, so I was over there studying for fisheries biology, and I come in, and I see this really, really cute girl there that I didn't know before, but she was a, a swimmer. Her name was Sally, and she was a friend of of Mark's, your 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 father. In fact, Mark was really, really inspirational in bringing her re- renewal to the Lord. And so she was becoming a, a committed Christian. And uh, so I was there and I realized that, the, that I had forgotten my glasses and I had my contacts in my head and the, the gym was going to close at a particular time. And I had like 10 minutes to get there. It, it was at least a 20 minute walk. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, was there anybody anybody's bike that I can borrow and Sally said sure you know you can borrow mine and so I I head off and I'm really really nervous about not getting there on time and so I'm cranking it on this bike and I'm shifting the gears and she didn't tell me that the derailleur was a little mischievous and the derailleur went got into the spokes and just completely messed up the spokes and the derailleur it was a mess And so I, I come back to the, the apartment and I said, Sally, I'm so sorry. I, I broke your bike. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things besides being a really great cook, she was cooking, making cookies and very, very pretty. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. And right then and there, I knew she was a special person that she could fix a bike. So anyway, uh, I, uh, that's how Sally and I met. We, we ended up marrying and, and, uh, and uh, we relocated to Corvallis, and Sally was a swimmer. Mm-hmm. And so she knew a lot about what was going on with the Corvallis Aquatic Program, and, and there was a directorship that was open. And she immediately thought, Mark. Mark has got to apply for this job. Mm-hmm. And so Mark gets on a plane and flies up and doesn't realize that he needed a, a suit. Mm-hmm. So here it is. Mark, how tall are you? Well, 5'9". Five 5'9", nine. Five nine and I'm 6'2". So I have, luckily I was a lot skinnier back then. And I had a, a suit that he could borrow and, and Sally hemmed up the, you know, the uh, the pant leg. And, you know, he could fill out the chest with no problem there. <laughs> but but anyway, he uh, applied for the job and got it. And all of a sudden we had a, another brother in, in town. It was a great thing. So if he hadn't had you there in Corvallis and needed a, an extra suit. I think it ended up being a couple interviews where he needed to come back and say, hey, Gerald, I need another suit. Then he might not have gotten that job, which means he wouldn't have met my mom, which means yeah. I wouldn't be born. So in a sense, I have to thank you, Gerald, that, that I can be even to here to interview you, among other things. So yeah. thank you. God works in mysterious ways. He's got a plan. And, and when we follow it, good things happen. When we do it our own way, look out. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing your thoughts, filming before a live audience of, of my parents here in California and in your home. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome, Josh. Well, that was pretty marvelous to hear from Gerald Gregory, a crazy volleyball playing career to go from not even playing in high school to being basically the best volleyball player in the country, the USA volleyball experience to the coaching stops all over the Western seaboard, and then some fun stories involving my family. And hopefully, even if you don't know me personally or my family, it's just kind of funny to see how things work together and the connections you make tend to pay off and the relationships you hold end up making a big difference in your life. And if I hadn't already realized that, seeing all these friendships in you know my parents' life or whoever it may be, 
obviously they play a big role in who you become and where you end up, who you live near and what opportunities you hear about, all that sort of stuff. So my thanks to Gerald Gregory for joining me on episode 36 of the Beaver Tales podcast. Hey, if you like these conversations, I don't ask for much, but two things. One is to check out one of the featured nonprofits I mention on a rotating basis, including Children's Garden. They help out kids who are living on the streets in the Philippines, an organization that I personally went and saw and interacted with. I got to know these kids and the two leaders of, of this uh, organization over near Manila in the Philippines. They do some amazing work, really impactful uh, in a direct community right there. You can check them out online at childrensgarden.ph. That's childrensgarden.ph. The other thing I ask is just to let someone know if you like this podcast and you can rate it on the platform you're using. Give it five stars, give it four stars, give it one half of a star. I don't think you can even do that, but whatever you feel is appropriate, that's uh, really helpful as well. Future guests on this podcast, just the next couple of episodes, include Will Seymour, former men's soccer player, current professional in Ireland's Premier Division, as well as my first gymnastics guest, Mary Jacobson, and also a women's basketball player, Casey Bunn Wilson, who's now the head coach at Linfield. So stay tuned for those episodes. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. As always, everybody, good night, and yes, go Beavs. <laughs>